0: Part Four, Chapter Nine of The Gambler. This Librebox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston, Chapter Nine. At eleven o'clock on July the fourth, Nance was to arrive at Tuffnell. Her boat reached Liverpool on the third, but it had been arranged that she was to spend the night on board and take an early train to Buckinghamshire on the following morning. At ten o'clock Clodagh, wearing a hat and veil, and drawing on her gloves, left her bedroom and descended the stairs. Taking advantage of Lady Diana's arrangement that all the guests were at liberty to breakfast in their own rooms, she had elected to avoid the family meal, at which her instinct told her gore would be present. After last night's mental crisis the idea of encountering his polite avoidance had seemed to her intolerable. As she passed downstairs now, with slow and sobered steps, she half paused as the burly figure of George Tuffnell appeared at the open hall door, but her hesitation was not permitted to last, for instantly her host caught sight of her, he came forward hospitably, and a new shame woke in her as she realized that Lady Diana Tuffnell had preserved silence even to her husband upon the subject of last night's incident, or at least upon her share in it. Hello, Mrs. Milbank," he cried cheerfully. "Has the London atmosphere got imported with our guests? These are London hours, you know." He strode up to her, followed closely by a couple of dogs, and seized her hand cordially. Clodagh gave a little embarrassed laugh, and instantly stooped to caress the dogs. "I feel ashamed of myself," she said hurriedly. "You and Lady Diana must forgive me, but I was very tired last night." "'Tufnell waved the matter, good-naturedly. "'Don't apologize. Don't mention it. But you should be thinking about the train. "'I was just coming to tell you that the trap is ready whenever you are. "'It was Dee's idea to give you the trap. She said you'd hate a big conveyance that would "'tempt people to offer themselves as escorts.' He laughed in his hearty, untroubled way. "'One of the men will drive you over, but you can get rid of him at the station. "'He'll come back in the dog-cart with Miss Ashland's luggage.' again clodagh bent to pat the dogs how kind of lady diana she murmured i haven't seen my little sister for years and years you know you'll find her changed i'll guarantee children do spring up he gave a loud contented sigh but shall i order the trap round or do you want to see d first i think i'll i'll see lady diana later if it will not seem ungracious ungracious not a bit i'll get the trap he turned and swung across the sunny hall, whistling to his dogs, and Clodagh, still quiet and subdued, walked slowly after him to the door. No one was about when the small trap was brought round from the stables, followed by Tuffnell and the dogs, and as Clodagh came down the steps the two animals pressed forward with upturned eager faces, and the friendly appeal in their faithful eyes touched her to remembrance of many grey and misty mornings when dennis ashland's high old-fashioned trap would sweep round from the orristown stable-yard and dogs such as these would plead passionately for a share in the impending journey a dry painful sensation seemed to catch her throat may they come with me she asked softly i love animals i had to send my own irish terrier home to ireland when i gave up my house in italy and nothing has ever quite taken his place do let them come they would be so good the two dogs looked swiftly from her face to their master's, but George Tuffnell pretended to be stern. No, he said loudly, no. Dick and Tom can't go to the station today. Instantly the two tails dropped. Come, Myers, he called to the groom. Mrs. Millbank has no time to spare. Dick, Tom, to heel. He winked humorously at Clodagh as she stepped into the trap, and a moment later the groom took his seat and picked up the reins then suddenly he broke into a shout of genial laughter you villains he cried off with you away with you and with a yelp of wild delight the dogs sped down the avenue clodagh scarcely noticed the details of that swift drive for a nervous sense of excitement and trepidation banished her powers of observation as she stepped from the little trap and entered the small country station she could scarcely command a steady voice in which to ask whether the train was yet due The train proved to be overdue by three minutes, and the knowledge brought an added qualm of apprehension. What if little Nance were utterly changed? What if America has spoiled her? But her thoughts and fears were alike broken in upon by a long, shrill whistle. The expected train loomed round a curve in the line, and a moment later roared its way into the station. There was a second of uncertainty. Then, somewhere in the front of the train, a door was flung open, a small slight figure in a muslin dress sped down the platform, and two warm arms were thrown about Clodagh's neck, bridging in one moment the gulf of years. The sisters held and kissed each other, regardless of the one or two country passengers who had alighted from the train and the two grooms from Tuffnell who were waiting for Nance's luggage. Then at last the younger girl drew away, and still holding Clodagh's hand, looked at her intently, oh clo she cried how lovely you are at the old name the old candid admiration tears rushed suddenly to clodagh's eyes i'm not darling i'm not but you are sweet and the same oh the very same she laughed with a break in her voice then as two porters came down the platform rolling nance's luggage she remembered the necessities of the moment is this yours yes my american clothes do i look very american you look sweet myers she added to the groom who had come forward this is miss Ashland's luggage and will you please go back in the dog-cart i want to drive the pony home myers touched his cap very good ma'am he turned and passed out of the station nance pressed her sister's hand with one of her old shy laughs that sounded infinitely sweet from grown-up lips clo i can never get used to your being called ma'am do you remember the people at san dominico Who would call you signora when poor james she stopped abruptly colouring at her unconsidered mention of her brother-in-law clo tell me all about tuffnell place she substituted with another sympathetic pressure of her fingers tell me about lady diana and mr tuffnell i think i should hate to be plain mister if my wife had a title and all about lady frances hope and lord deerehurst and mr serracauld i'm dying to see all the people you put in your letters they're like characters in a book and of course you are the heroine oh i'm so happy clo she cried ecstatically i'm so happy do you care for me do you want me much very much her dark blue eyes searched clodagh's face as they had been wont to search it long ago for beneath the pretty manner that time had taught her her warm loyal nature had remained unchanged and as clodagh returned her glance her heart suddenly sank "'Until the moment of her meeting with Nance she had been conscious of only one desire in her regard—the desire to fully confess to her appropriation of the thousand pounds. For in the lull that followed the previous night's crisis she had seen this confession as the sole means of regaining self-respect. Her other follies, her gambling, and her extravagances offered no means of redress, but for this one personal act of weakness she could still do penance.' And now by her very faith, by her very love, Nance had shaken the desire. This spontaneous unsuspicious admiration was the sweetest experience that had come into her life. She involuntarily returned the pressure of the clinging fingers as she drew her sister through the small gate of the station. She was glad to think that there was the drive home, the moments of arrival and unpacking, before any mention of personal matters could break in upon the present calm. Outside the station Nance saw the two dogs for the first time and insisted upon making friends with them before entering the trap. "'Did you miss Mick dreadfully when you sent him back to Orristown?" she asked, when at last she took her seat. "'Dreadfully,' Clo answered, taking the reins from the groom. "'But I didn't know what to do with him when I left the villa. You see, I had no real plans.' "'No, no, of course not. But you'll get him back soon?' "'Yes, I want to.' Clo gathered up the reins, and the pony started forward at a swift trot. "'But do you know, Nance, I have thought of going to Orristown in a month or so. Would you like to come to Ireland?' "'Like to? Oh, Clo, I have dreamt and dreamt of our being at Orristown together, just you and me. Can you picture it? Wearing our oldest clothes, riding and walking and sailing all day long, and making Hannah cook us the most heavenly cakes for tea?' She clasped her hands rapturously regardless of her new white gloves. Clodagh laughed softly and affectionately. "'Oh, you child,' she said almost enviously. How sweet and pretty and unaffected she was, this little sister who had suddenly stepped back into her life. An overwhelming tender feeling of protectiveness welled up within her, a sudden deep longing to shelter and guard her, to hedge her round with all that is sacred and fine. "'Nance,' she said impulsively, "'Have you ever thought that I behaved badly to you, behaved unfairly in any way?' "'Unfairly?' "'Yes,' Nance laughed. "'You're dreaming, Clo. How could you behave unfairly?' "'Suppose someone were to tell you that I had. I shouldn't believe, that's all. If I were to tell you—' Clodagh's fingers tightened on the reins. "'If you were to tell me that—' Nance said very slowly—' i think it would spoil everything in the world i believe so so dreadfully in you but why talk about it when it's nonsense she shook off the momentary shadow that had fallen between them i hate ifs unless they're very happy ones so clodagh struggled no more with her conscience during the drive along the shady buckinghamshire roads yielding to the spell of nance's voice she lulled the knowledge of impending difficulties and opened her ears to the tale of her sister's experiences of her friends, her acquaintances, her pleasures, her occupations all poured forth with a perfectly ingenuous egotism that was a refreshment and delight, though they remained together all through the morning and afternoon, the sisters had no further opportunity of a tete-- immediately on their arrival at Tuffnell. Lady Diana had made Nance welcome and had introduced her to her fellow guests, and the remainder of the day had been spent first in tennis and croquet, later in a long coach drive which included a call upon some neighbors of the Tuffnells. Almost immediately after dinner, however, Clodagh had pleaded that Nance was tired and had borne her off to her own room. There she dismissed Simonetta, and closing the door drew forward two chairs to the open window. Now, she said at last, "'What do you think of Tufnell and of everybody?' She sank into one of the chairs with a little sigh. But Nance, instead of answering, tiptoed across the room, and bending over the back of her chair, gave her a long, impulsive kiss. "'Darling,' she cried, "'Clo, you are so lovely. I am so proud of you.' Clodagh pressed her cheeks against the warm lips, then drew Nance round to the side of her chair. "'Talk to me,' she said, tell me whether you like tuffnell nance gave a little laugh of inconsequent happiness and nestled down at her sister's feet tuffnell is heavenly but there are only four nice people here four nice people what do you mean what i say there are only four nice people here you of course she lifted one of clodagh's hands and pressed it against her lips and lady diana tuffnell and mr tuffnell and that nice fair man with a sunburnt face clodagh withdrew her hand from her sister's sir walter gore yes don't you think him nice i-oh i-i don't know but why he likes you clodagh gave a quick unsteady laugh and sank back into her chair dear little nance what a baby you are if there is one person in the world who does not like me it is sir walter gore with a sudden movement of interest nance sat up and looked at her sister but he does clo she said i saw him looking at you over and over again when you were talking to other people he likes you oh he does like you and he doesn't care one bit for lady frances hope though she follows him everywhere he goes but clodagh sat suddenly upright and with an abrupt gesture put her hand on her sister's shoulder nance she said sharply you are talking about things that you don't understand don't talk about them it-it annoys me but clo for answer clodagh stooped and kissed her almost nervously when you are older nance you will know that it is tactless to talk of certain things to certain people don't talk to me again of sir walter gore he and i have nothing to do with each other we-we belong to different worlds once more she bent and kissed nance's startled penitent face and putting her gently from her rose and walked to the window For some minutes there was silence in the room. Then Clodagh spoke in a completely different voice. Nance, she said, there is something I want to tell you, something I should have written to you and didn't. Nance, in the swift relief of her sister's altered tone, sprang to her feet, and running across the room threw her arms about her. And, Clodagh, there's something I ought to have written to you, only I was too shy and had to wait till I could say it like this with my arms round you. It was Clodagh's turn to look startled. She tried to hold Nance away from her, that she might see her face, but Nance only clung the closer. "'Clo, do you love me? Oh, say you love me.' "'Of course I love you.' "'And you want me vexed?' "'Nance, what is it? You frighten me. What is it?' "'Oh, it's nothing frightening. It's—it's about Pierce—Pierce Esquade.' The words came forth with a tremendous gasp. "'What is it?' "'He—' Clo, he wants to marry me you're not vexed oh clo you're not vexed at last nance's arms relaxed and she looked up beseechingly into her sister's face in sudden nervous relief and amusement clodagh laughed then her face became grave again and she drew her sister to her with deep impulsive tenderness vexed darling she said vexed nance kissed her ecstatically oh the relief of having it said she cried I have felt like a criminal keeping it to myself, but Pierce said I could do more with one word than a dozen letters. Clo looked down into the pretty eager face, and laughed again softly, though her eyes were full of tears. "'Pierce was right,' she said. "'I don't think anyone could say more in one word than you could. But do you love him, Nance? Do you love him? That is the great, great thing, and you are so very young.' A look of keen anxiety crossed her face and she gazed into Nance's eyes as if striving to read her heart. Nance returned her look with a steadfast gravity, curious in one so young. "'Next to you, Clo, he's the best person in all the world,' she said. The tears in Clodagh's eyes brimmed over. "'You put me first. Really, Nance, really.' Nance nodded seriously. "'And next to you he's the very best. But Clo,' she blushed deeply, he wants me to marry him soon fearfully soon in the autumn he's coming over with mrs Escoit and daisy in three weeks time to try to persuade you clo you're not vexed he has promised that we shall be together more than half every year if you wish clodagh touched by a pang of loneliness turned away and gazed through the open window across the sleeping country and you love him you are certain that you love him she turned again and laid her hands on her sister's shoulders. Nance's gaze, wise in its very youthfulness, met hers unflinchingly. "'I care for him like I care for you, Clo, and I've cared for you always.' Clodagh drew a long breath. "'Then I am satisfied. I shall not keep you from happiness.' With a quiet movement, she bent forward and kissed the soft hair above Nance's forehead. After this seal of love, Both were silent for a minute or two. Then Nance spoke again, her lashes lowered, her fingers twisted tightly about her sisters. "'Clo, doesn't it seem wonderful that he should care for me? He, who is so bright and clever and rich. But I've been lucky in everything, haven't I? I haven't liked to say it before, but wasn't it awfully kind, awfully good of James?' Clodagh half withdrew her hand. In the surprising news that Nance had given her, She had forgotten the confession she had still to make. Clo wasn't it awfully kind of him? Clodagh did not answer at once, and when she did so, her voice was strained. To leave you that money? That thousand pounds? Yes, the thousand pounds. Clo, you don't know the dozens and dozens of times it has made me happy to think of that since... since Pierce has cared for me. It isn't that I like money for itself, but when one is horribly poor one is sensitive about marrying a millionaire i mean you know again her fingers clung to her sister's yes one feels that one would like to come to him with everything that well that his sister would have if she married it's very silly of course clodagh do i seem very silly at any other time clodagh would have smiled at the ingenuousness of the words but now some feeling within herself banished amusement what is it darling she asked there's something you are trying to say nance looked up into her face clo it's all this stupid pride of course pierce and daisy and mrs escoit know that i have nothing except my share in orristown which of course is nothing and i know that for all the rest of my life i shall be dependent on pierce for everything but it's just because of that that i want to come to him with all the things the clothes and things that other girls have. Oh, I know it's hateful of me. It's weak and vain. Clodagh pressed her hand suddenly. No, darling, I understand. You do? Oh, Clo, dear Clo. then you know what the thousand pounds seems like. A thousand pounds, all my own. Money of my own to buy beautiful things with. Things like daisies, things like yours. I, who have never had a penny that really belonged to me. And Clodagh, may i have it soon that's what i want to say may i have it soon i won't spend it all of course not half not quarter she laughed but may i have it soon it-it would be heaven with a swift involuntary movement clodagh freed her hand clo i have said too much i have asked too much no darling no no then i've tired you clo you're tired she caught clodagh's hand again and you wanted to tell me something oh i've been selfish won't you forgive me and say it now but clodagh turned from her and walked to the writing-table the table on which her father's miniature had rested the night before no i won't talk to-night darling she said without looking round i-i think i have forgotten what i was going to say End of Chapter Nine. chapter ten the keynote of clodagh's character was impulse she loved she hated she was generous she was foolish with a wide impulsiveness when nance had spoken of her engagement her unselfish joy and relief in the security it promised had aroused a renewed desire for self-sacrifice as represented by confession of her weakness but a moment later when nance had spoken of milbanke's legacy of her innocent joy in its existence Of her innocent desire for its possession the wish had faltered she had given her tacit agreement that the thousand pounds should be placed in nance's hands the thousand pounds of which the greater portion had already gone to swell the coffers of london tradesmen or fill the pockets of her friends that was her position on the night of nance's confidence and on the following morning she woke with an oppressive sense that action must be taken in some direction The whole house-party, with the exception of Deerhurst, put in an appearance at the early breakfast, and as Clodagh entered the breakfast-room her spirits rallied a little at the sight of the crowded table, and she took her place between George Tuffnell and Serracauld with a sense of respite. Lady Diana, who was occupying her usual place at the head of the table, had borne Nance off to sit beside her, while Lady Frances, looking a little worn in the searching morning light, was keeping Mrs. Bathurst, Mansfeldt, and Gore amused. The breakfast was not a long meal, and at its conclusion Lady Diana looked round the table. "'Now, people,' she said amiably, "'what are the morning's plans? You know you are none of you to forget my dance tonight and tire yourselves.' Mrs. Bathurst turned to her with a pretty languid smile. "'I'm going to play croquet with Mr. Mansfeld," she announced, "'Nice, lazy, old-fashioned croquet. We shall turn up at lunchtime.' "'And you, Walter?' Lady Diana asked. "'Will you drive over with me to Winchley? We might take Frances and—' Again she looked round the party—' "'And Miss Ashland. But Nance glanced quickly down the table to where her sister sat. Clodagh caught the questioning look and bent her head. "'Yes, go with Lady Diana,' she said affectionately. "'It's very sweet of her to take you.' Nance smiled shyly. "'I know,' she said, looking from Clodagh to her hostess. Lady Diana returned a smile. "'It's sweet of your sister to spare you to me.' While she was speaking, Sarah called, turned to Clodagh. "'Will you give me the morning?' he said in an undertone. She drew back and laughed a little. "'What a conceited suggestion! Fancy throwing my little sister over to spend the morning with you!' He looked at her unabashed and as Tuffnell turned to address his neighbor, he bent close to her again. "'You were very hard on me. When will you be really properly kind?' "'Oh, sometimes, perhaps.' Clodagh's tone was careless and light. "'This morning, then. Come for a ride with me.' She laughed once more, and shook her head. "'I have a letter, a terrible business letter, that must be written, a letter to Mr. Barnard.' Serracauld raised his eyebrows a trifle satirically. "'To Barney?' ah then i shan't press the point but how many dances am i to have to-night dances you know i shan't dance she glanced down at her black linen dress he smiled a little am i a schoolboy that i should want to dance how many dances are we to sit out to sit out oh i'll tell you that when we sat out one without looking at him she pushed back her chair as lady diana rose then let that be the first dance she nodded inconsequently "'Perhaps the first dance.' She stood up and, joining the rest of the company, moved down the room. As she gained the door Nance ran up to her. "'Clo, darling, can't I stay with you?' Clo smiled down into the eager, upturned face. "'Not this morning. I have a business letter to write.' "'Then I must go?' Nance's face fell. "'Must, darling.' "'But, Clo, you'll think of me and love me all the time. You're writing the horrid thing?' Clodagh laughed then all at once her face looked grave dearest she said suddenly you don't know how much and without explaining her words or waiting for nance to speak again she passed quickly across the hall and up the stairs four different times clodagh began her letter to barnard sitting by the writing-table close to the open window of her bedroom she watched the various members of the house-party depart on their different ways but the quieter and more deserted the house became the more impossible it seemed to her to accomplish the task she had in hand. At last, with a gesture of despair, she tore up the half written letters that lay strewn about her, and rising from the table with a sign of vexation left the room closing the door softly. With a frown of unhappiness and perplexity still upon her forehead she descended the stairs, crossed the hall, and passing round the back of the house made her way to the rose garden the rose garden at tuffnell was always a place of beauty but in the month of july it was a paradise of scent and colour down its centre ran a long strip of close-cut lawn flanked on either side by stone seats and stone nymphs and satyrs brought from an old italian garden on the high wall that preserved to the place an absolute seclusion a dozen peacocks sunned themselves gorgeously while over the entire closure grew and climbed and drooped roses roses of every shade and of every size roses that filled the air with a warm scent that seemed at once to mingle with and to hold the summer sun she paused for an instant upon entering this enchanted garden and drew a deep breath of involuntary delight then walking slowly as though haste might desecrate such beauty she passed down the long, smooth lawn that formed an alley of greenness amid the pink and crimson of the flowers. Pausing at the farther end she stood, soothed by the sights and sounds about her, until suddenly a harsh, disturbed cry from one of the peacocks broke the spell. She turned sharply and saw Deerehurst standing close behind her. "'I saw you from my dressing-room window,' he said, in answer to her look of surprise. "'Was it very presumptuous of me to follow you?' The cold, familiar voice banished the thought of the roses. Her vexations and perplexities came back upon her abruptly, causing her face to cloud over. "'No,' she said hastily, "'no, I think I am glad to see you. I am in a hopeless mood to-day. Things won't go right.' He took her hand and bent over it with even more than his usual deference, although his cold eyes shot a swift glance at her distressed face. "'But you must not say that,' he said softly. "'Things can always be compelled to go right.' She shook her head despondently. "'Not for me.' He freed her hand gently and pointed to one of the stone seats that stood under the shadow of the rose-bushes. "'Shall we sit down?' he said. "'There is a great deal of repose to be found in this garden of Lady Diana's. She had it copied many years ago from my rose-garden at Amble. Clodagh looked up at him as they moved together across the grass indeed she said from your rose-garden yes she and tuffnell stayed with me at amblais shortly after they were married when my sister was alive and lady diana fell in love with my rose-garden i remember i sent a couple of my gardeners down here to plant this one for her it is an exact reproduction on a smaller scale there was silence while they seated themselves then clodagh looking meditatively in front of her at the evil face of one of the stone satyrs spoke suddenly and impulsively i envy you she said you envy me there was a curious almost an eager tone in Deerehurst's voice but she was too preoccupied to hear it all people are to be envied who have power and freedom i get so tired of myself sometimes so rebellious against myself "'I am always doing the things I should not do, and failing to do the things I should. I am hopeless.' For a space he made no attempt to break in upon her mood. Then, very quietly, he bent forward and looked up into her face. "'What is worrying you?' he asked in a whisper. "'Confession really is very good for the soul.' For a moment she answered nothing, then, yielding to an impulse, she met his scrutinizing eyes oh it's only a letter that won't let itself be written one of those abominable letters that one has to write talking of it does no good no good i'm not so sure of that i believe in talking tell me about it clodagh laid her hand nervously on the arm of the seat i have been stupid she said almost defiantly i have overstepped my allowance and must ask mr barnard to advance me some money and-and i somehow hate to do it am i not a fool she laughed unsteadily and turned to look at her companion but he had drawn back into the shadow of the seat oh it's childish ridiculous i am disgusted with myself her glance again crossed the strip of green lawn to where the stone satyr stood quite silently deerhurst bent forward again what is the amount he asked softly a thousand pounds and is barnard such a very great friend Clodagh started. "'No, oh no, why?' She turned quickly and looked at him. "'Because I wish to know why it should be Barnard.' There was a long silence in which she felt her heart beat uncomfortably fast. A sudden surprise, a sudden confusion filled her. Then through the confusion she was conscious that Deerehurst was speaking again. "'Why should you think of Barnard?' he murmured. "'Barnard is not a rich man.' to advance you a thousand pounds may possibly inconvenience him, whereas a man who need not consider ways and means.' Clodagh sat very still. "'Yes, but I think—' And why think? He spoke calmly, considerately, without a tinge of disturbing emotion. "'Why think? Why write that troublesome letter? Why ask a favour when—by granting one?' "'Granting one?' "'Yes,' when by granting a favor you can make everything smooth think what it would be to me for instance if some of the money i am saddled with were used to bring you happiness or peace think of the favor you would be doing me she half rose then sank back again oh but i couldn't how could i and why not look i have only to open my check-book he very quietly drew a check-book from his breast pocket find the all-powerful pen He searched for and produced a gold pen, and look. He wrote rapidly for a moment, then held a fluttering white paper in front of Clodagh's eyes. Look. With a little start, a little cry of deprecation, she rose from her seat. In a flash of memory she recalled the night on the balcony at Venice when he had kissed her hand. She recalled the letter she had found awaiting her in her room at the hotel. In sudden fear she glanced at him then her fear faltered. To her searching eyes he presented the same aspect that he had assumed since their first meeting in London—the aspect of a tried, deferential friend. "'How could I?' she asked again, but unconsciously her tone had weakened. For answer, Deerehurst folded up the check and held it out to her with a respectful, almost a formal bow, by extending to me the merest act of friendship she sat very still not attempting to take the cheque i-i could not repay it before january perhaps not entirely even then january or any time i understand the art of patience for one moment longer her uncertain glance wandered from the slip of paper to the glowing rose-bushes from the roses to the cold malignant face of the satyr that confronted her across the strip of grass you-you are very kind "'In in January, then?' Deerhurst bowed again, and in complete silence the cheque passed from his hand to hers. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 Action Decisive action always brings relief. An hour after it had come into her possession, Clodagh had dispatched Deerhurst's cheque to her bankers in London and when at seven o'clock she entered Nance's room with the intention of dressing for the night's festivities she was carrying a check from her own book. As she came into the room Nance was kneeling before her trunk, but at the sound of the closing door she looked round and sprang to her feet with a cry of delight. Clo, she cried running forward, Clo, how lovely of you to come! Shall we dress together like long ago? Then her eyes fell to the folded slip of paper in Clodagh's hand what is that she asked curiously clodagh looked down at the check i have come to do my duty she said with a faint laugh here is your thousand pounds darling may it be enough to buy everything in life worth having her voice faltered on the last words but the touch of emotion was lost in a sudden embrace from nance oh you darling you love she cried a thousand pounds i feel like a queen she drew back a little flushing with excitement and pleasure and opened the check almost reverently. "'And can I really, really get a thousand pounds by signing my name on the back of this? I can't believe it, you know. I simply can't.' She raised her shining eyes to Clodagh's. Clodagh's face softened. "'Oh, you poor child,' she said, "'you child, it makes me remember our weekly pennies just to listen to you. How poor and how very happy we were long ago. Do you remember?' nance gave a little cry of recollection remember clo could i forget then followed another impulsive embrace a kiss and a whole torrent of reminiscence and a quarter of an hour had slipped away before the entrance of simonetta with clodagh's dress recalled them to the knowledge of present things five minutes before the dinner hour had struck the sisters entered the hall at the foot of the stairs nance was detained by george tuffnell while clodagh left alone for the moment was at once claimed by serracauld he came forward from one of the windows moving with his usual graceful indolence and pausing beside her looked intently into her face you look radiant to-night he said she laughed can one ever look radiant in black serracauld's eyes passed slowly from her face to her slim white neck yes he said in his cool deliberate voice She gave another laugh, slightly shorter and more conscious than the last, but before she could speak again he moved a trifle nearer and laid his fingers lightly on her fan. "'And how many dances am I to have? I told you that I must not dance. Yet.' "'And I told you that I would not make you dance. How many may I have?' He bent very close to her, then frowned a little, and drew away again as Lady Frances Hope followed by Mrs. Bathurst and Mansfeld, came towards them across the hall. "'You give me the dances?' he asked quickly. Clodagh glanced at the approaching party, then bent her head in assent, and which—his tone was eager—the first, at least, she said. With a faint satisfied smile he turned and moved away. Dinner that night was a very lively meal— "'Everybody seemed imbued with the spirit of the coming ball "'and anxious to display a personal sense of anticipation. "'After the company had risen from table, "'Clodagh and Nance met again in the hall by previous arrangement "'and retired to their rooms that Simonetta might put some finishing touches "'to their hair and dresses, "'and that they might get the bouquets they were to carry at the dance. "'As they mounted the staircase side by side, "'Nance, after the custom of old days, "'slipped her arm through her sister's. "'Clo,' she said softly, "'you are excited too. "'I can feel it.' Clodagh smiled a little. "'Well, it is my first dance.' Nance halted and looked at her. "'Why, of course it is. "'And you must feel like I did the night "'of Mrs. Escoid's ball. "'The night—' She stopped, blushing. "'Oh, darling,' she added, "'fancy my not realizing that you had never been to a dance. "'It must feel lovely and strange to you.' Clodagh drew her onward up the stairs. "'Yes, it does feel different from anything else. Of course I shan't dance, but then people may ask me to—to sit out. May? I wonder who wouldn't ask you?' Nance's eyes spoke volumes as they traveled from her sister's face to the long lines of her soft black dress. Arrested by the look, Clodagh spoke again, abruptly and a little anxiously. "'Nance, why do you say that?' "'Say what?' that people would ask me for dances that people would care again nance paused and looked at her i am nearly angry with you for asking anything so silly she said after a second's pause but i won't be i'll forgive you though you know perfectly well that there isn't a man here who wouldn't sit out or dance or do anything in the world with you from now till doomsday she looked up laughingly but as she did so her expression fell clou you're angry Clodagh patted the hand that lay upon her wrist. "'Angry, darling? No, only thinking how wrong you are. Wrong? Yes, I know one man who would not dance with me even if—if I were to offer him a dance.' She made the confession swiftly, in obedience to a sudden impulse. Nance looked at her afresh in involuntary curiosity. "'Clo!' But Clodagh raised her head in a half-defiant return to reticence. "'Don't mind me,' she said after all no man should fill anybody's world should he come along it's half-past nine and i hear the first carriages and without waiting for nance to reply she swept her down the corridor to the door of her bedroom the presence of simonetta precluded the possibility of further confidences and ten minutes later as the sisters again emerged upon the corridor the appearance of lady frances hope from the door of her own room deprived nance of the moment for which she had been waiting Seeing them, Lady Frances came forward smilingly. "How charming," she said. "A study in black and white." Where did those wonderful roses come from, Clodagh? They're nearly as dark as your dress. Clodagh looked down at the damask roses in her hand. "Yes, aren't they nearly black?" she said easily. "I was saying to Lord Deerhurst the other day that there were no flowers one could wear in mourning, and today I found these in my room. He had wired for them to Ambley." it was very thoughtful of him.' Lady Frances gave an odd little smile. "'Very,' she said. "'I wonder if he meant them to be mourning. I believe there was a language of flowers when he was young.' She gave a short amused laugh, and turned to Nance. "'And this is your first English dance, Miss Ashlyn.' Nance, whose eyes had been flashing from one face to the other, gave a little start at being so suddenly addressed. "'Yes, yes it is. I came out in America.' then you can tell us in the morning which men make the nicest partners english or american nance laughed and clodagh with the new protective instinct put out her hand and drew her close to her nance has made her choice she said impulsively the field is not open to englishmen but let us go downstairs we are barely in time at the foot of the stairs the three turned to the left and made their way to the ballroom through the throng of arriving guests entering the long room they moved slowly forward to where lady diana and her husband were receiving their guest reaching lady diana's side clodagh felt her heart beat quicker as she caught sight of gore's fair head and tall straight figure and a strange sense of repeated sensation surged about her it might almost have been the night at the Palazzo Ugacinì when lady frances hope had held her reception her hand felt a little unsteady as she laid it over nance's her voice sounded low and uncertain as she spoke her hostess's name lady diana she said here is nance you told me to bring her to you before the first dance at her tone so very soft and pleading lady diana turned and a smile the first real smile she had given her since the episode of two nights ago broke over her face yes she said with sudden geniality yes that is quite right leave her with me I will find her the nicest men. She paused and her eyes travelled kindly from Clodagh's face to her black dress. And you? Won't you have some partners? Her glance swept the little group about her. Walter, Mrs. Milbank won't dance, but— At the moment that she spoke, Call's light voice sounded from behind them and his slim figure emerged from the surrounding crowd. Ah, here you are, Mrs. Milbank. I have a strong suspicion that I am only just in time. Where shall we go? Into the music-room, or out into the garden? Supremely ignoring the rest of the group, he offered Clodagh his arm and led her out into the throng at the moment that the swaying notes of the first waltz floated down the musician's gallery. With a faint disappointment, warring with a faint elation, Clodagh suffered him to guide her down the long ballroom. Life seemed suddenly a brighter thing than it had seemed for days. Nance was with her, Lady Diana had smiled on her again, and only a moment ago she had met Gore's eyes in almost the first direct glance they had exchanged since his coming to Tuffnell. She lifted her head in response to a sudden excited happiness as the dancers flashed past her over the polished floor and the deep long notes of the violins vibrated on the air unconsciously her fingers tightened on serracauld's arm and in instant response he paused can you resist he said she looked up at him the colour had rushed into her face with the emotion of the moment an inordinate longing to be young to enjoy to be as the crowd about her swept her mind imperiously a peculiar look crossed serracauld's eyes just for two minutes he whispered no one will see you in the first crush there is no waltz like this. Almost before she was aware of it he had slipped his arm round her waist. For an instant a gleam of surprise, of alarm, showed in her face. Then the long persuasive notes of the stringed instruments dropped to a lower, more enticing key. She yielded to the pressure of his arm and the two glided in amongst the dancers. They made the half-circuit of the room, escaping the observation of the house-party at its further end and as they reached the door Clodagh pressed her hand detainingly on Seracalde's arm. He paused. "'Tired?' he asked, looking down into her flushed face and brilliant eyes. She shook her head faintly. Her heart was still beating too fast, her brain still felt too elated to notice the ardor and the intentness of his gaze. "'We must stop,' she said softly. "'You know even the two minutes were stolen.' He slowly withdrew his arm from her waist but still kept his eyes on hers. "'I suppose all the things in life worth having are come by dishonestly,' he said lightly. Then in a lower tone he added, "'Do you know that you dance gloriously?' Clodagh made no answer. Her mind was more occupied with the dance just gone through than with the partner who had shared it, and for the moment Seracalde was content with her silence. Leaving the ballroom, they passed together down a long corridor that ended in a short flight of stairs leading to the card-room. At the foot of these stairs he paused, struck by a new idea. "'Suppose we look into the card-room,' he said. "'I believe it will be deserted at this early hour.' Clodagh ascended. "'If you like,' she said, "'it would be rather nice to find a quiet spot.' And leading the way with careless unconcern she began to mount the stairs. The door of the card-room was open the baize-covered tables were arranged for play, but only one small green-shaded lamp had been lighted and the window was uncurtained and open to the still summer night. She paused on the threshold and Sarah called, stepped quickly to her side. It might almost have been arranged for us, he said. Won't you go in? She waited for a moment longer, then walked slowly forward and halted beside one of the tables. Very quietly her companion closed the door, and, crossing the room softly, paused close behind her. "'Do you know that you dance gloriously?' he said again. "'But I always knew you would. A waltz with you is one of the things I promised myself a long time ago.' As he spoke she was conscious that his shoulder almost brushed hers. With a faintly uneasy movement she raised her head. "'What do you mean?' she asked, turning and meeting his eyes in the dim light of the room there was something curious, new, and alarming in the glance she encountered. He was standing exceedingly near. His face looked very pale, the pupils of his eyes were dilated, giving them a peculiar, unfamiliar look. Embarrassed and yet doubtful that her embarrassment was justified, she turned away and, nervously taking a pack of cards from the table, began to pass them through her fingers. "'I don't know what you mean,' she said again. "'I don't understand.' Quite suddenly Cyril called laugh, and passing his arms over hers caught her hands so that the cards fluttered to the table. "'Nonsense,' he said in a sharp whispering voice. "'Nonsense! The prettiest woman of the season not understand?' He laughed again, and with a swift movement freed her hands, and clasping her suddenly and closely forced her head backwards and bent his face to hers. The action was not so much a kiss as a vehement almost painful pressure of his lips upon her mouth something that stung her to resentment rather than to fear for one instant she remained passive the next she had freed herself with the muscular activity that had always belonged to her slight supple frame as she drew away from him she was trembling and her face was white but there was a look he had never imagined in her eyes and on her lips for one moment it seemed that she meant to speak and then her lips closed she turned away from him and walked out of the room without a word end of chapter eleven recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com